you've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. If you're my age or even older, you likely remember the roadside retail brand Stuckies. At one time, it was the roadside convenience store chain along a lot of the U.S. highways. And if you were on a family road trip, you knew that was the place where you could stop and get a consistent experience. Lots of treats, including their famous pecan log, and lots of souvenirs to keep everyone occupied in the car. I mean, even I remember getting a lot of my first comic books there for my road trip reading. Yeah, um, we weren't able to watch screens in my family's station wagon in the 70s and 80s. But now I understand if you're not that familiar with Stuckey's, it's not the road trip icon that it once was. At their peak, Stuckey's had over 350 locations in the U.S. Now they have less than 70. As Stuckey's fell out of family hands and was sold and resold to different owners, the brand has been struggling for decades. Until now. In late 2019, Stephanie Stuckey, granddaughter of founder W.S. Stuckey, purchased and took the leadership reins over Stuckey's, and now she's full steam ahead on turning the brand around. And I'm thrilled that I got to talk with Stephanie for this week's episode. Stephanie and I discuss all the work she's been doing to mount a brand comeback story that's redefining the road trip experience and capturing the hearts of nostalgia-loving fans everywhere. From her scrappy marketing strategy, to simplifying her operations, to the lessons she learned from her grandfather, to turning a profit for the first time in over five years, it's all a fascinating discussion that gives you some great insight into how to revitalize a dying brand. So here it is, my interview with Stephanie Stuckey. Hi, Stephanie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How's everything with you, Matt? Doing really well. I am excited to have this talk. I, you know, as, as you know, I have been a Stuckey's fan since I was a little kid. Uh, I remember stopping at Stuckey's on road trips and grabbing a you know, number of comic books I can read for the road. And then lately, you know, in adulthood, the past uh, you know, decade plus, we'd always stop by and grab treats. And I would always make sure that I wanted to get a Stuckey's t-shirt for the trip. Well, thank you so much. I Hearing stories like that is why I embarked on this crazy journey, pivoted my career, and decided to revive this wonderful brand. It's people like you who stopped and you like to road trip and have wonderful memories. And it's about creating those memories again for a whole new generation of people. Yes, I love it. But now 
you took over the helm of Stuckey's uh, quite recently, you know, in 2019. That's right, November 2019. So right at the end. Unfortunately, right before a global pandemic. Uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me why you decided to come take over the company. So I think like a lot of major life decisions, you don't necessarily recognize that the time is happening, that that's what is happening. This is really a pivotal moment because it started as something fairly innocuous with an email that I got from my dad's former business partner, who was one of the owners of Stuckey's. And he asked me if I wanted to buy his shares of Stuckey stock. And then when I appeared interested, suddenly all the other co-owners, all my dad's former business partners, there are about four of them, the attorney, the treasurer, the president, and my dad, they own Stuckey's. They suddenly wanted to sell me their shares. And the company, just to backtrack without going into too much of the detail, but I'm happy to explore this further if you want, but... The company was founded in 1937 by my grandfather as a roadside stand selling pecans during the Great Depression. And it grew from there. By the 1960s, we had 368 stores in 40 states on every major interstate highway except the Pacific Northwest. My grandfather sold the company in 1964, before I was even born. There was a succession of corporate takeovers. The brand plummeted. My father then got the company back in 1985. At that point, he was running several other companies, and it was fortuitous that he was able to get it. And it was an odd string of circumstances that led to him getting the company back in family hands. He was at the helm for decades, and then my dad retired circa 2010. It's a little blurry because... He retired, but then he was still involved reading financial reports, but he pretty much retired and his partners retired. They sold their main businesses and Stuckey's was the only company that was still really actively managed by sort of that corporate team. And they left two people in charge. The company for the past almost decade has not had a CEO, has not had a marketing budget, has not had a strategic plan and has been on life support. So that's sort of the backstory that it was losing money and they asked me if I wanted to buy their shares. I decided to do it because I knew what the brand was capable of. I remember stopping at Stuckey's as a kid, even though it was out of family hands by the time I was a kid, my grandfather was still involved with the company for a while. And I I took those road trips just like you did. And I thought there's something lacking in the road trip experience and Stuckey's can fill that. And I wanted to be part of that amazing journey to bring this nostalgic brand back to life. I'm sorry. No, that was long winded, but I condensed 80 plus years of history right in that those few minutes. It's a long and winding story. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I do want to cover later on. But when you talk about buying that, um, and I've, I've heard you say that you were advised by a number of people that it was a bad investment before buying it. But what did you see that nobody else saw? That's right. So To be fair, the people that I consulted were financial advisors, and they did exactly what a financial advisor should do, which is look at the books, almost like a forensic accounting, and really analyze, is this company profitable? What are the chances of the company succeeding if it continues along this trajectory? And the prospects were not good, and the balance sheet didn't look good. The company finished 2019 with six-figure loss, 
and had been losing money for five years. So I respected their opinion and it, it helped me negotiate a lower price. But what I saw is what you don't see on balance sheets. And it's why I think it's important in business, as I've learned through this crazy journey of not having a background in business, although I'm a lawyer, so I have a background in, in law, which is related. But often, I, w- you, I think when you're looking at financial statements, you don't see the heart and soul of a company. You don't see the brand. You don't see the experiences like you had, and hopefully others listening to this podcast have had stopping at the stores. That's not encapsulated in ink and paper on a financial report. So I knew the feeling that this company could evoke. I knew how much fun road trips are. And I just thought, this is my moment. This is my chance to do this. And I will always regret if I turned this down. So I I did it. And within six months, we started making a profit. I took on a business partner to help me run the company. We jointly own it. We recently bought a manufacturing facility. So now we own a pecan shelling and a candy plant, which is the most fun ever. I have to say, if I had to choose careers to say, owning a candy plant is really just like a Willy Wonka movie. It's the most fun. So I'm so glad I did it. So you just said that that it had been operating at a loss for over five years. Is that right? That's right. And then when you came on, you, you, you said you turned profit within six months? That's right. What was the driver for that? So again, I went back to the financial advisors and they've been very helpful. And it's so basic. And that's what I love about what your principles are. And I have read up on how you really promote simplicity. And it was really comes down to the basics. What is driving profit for this company? So that's what I looked at in the financial reports. I saw that 80% of the revenue was generated through sales of the product. It's not through the retail stores. And just quick background, we don't own or operate any of the stores. And that was actually my grandfather's business model as well. They're all independently owned and operated. There's a whole other story about the franchising situation if you want to get into it, but I'll put that aside. But the point being, we were not making the money off of franchising. And we're actually really not even operating a franchise. We're a licensing operation because we we lack a lot of the criteria for having a franchise. So I hunkered down on what was generating revenue and that sale of our product. And our product is our merchandise with our logo. And our product is our food. So I really started finding more sales opportunities for our food outside of our franchise locations because we're very limited if we just sell at the stocky stores. There's only 65 of them. So I got us into Ace Hardware stores. Uh, We're in grocery channels now. We're in some food lines. Not everyone, hopefully soon. And just rapidly started expanding the sales through other outlets. And then our online sales, we got a new website and online sales went up 550%. Part of that's COVID effect because people were turning to e-commerce, but the numbers for the industry writ large are not anywhere near 550% increase. if If I recall correctly, it was about 70% increase for most retail or most commercial operations about our size. So 
our numbers indicate that a lot of that's attributed to our, our refresh of the brand. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating. And it's really a great look at how you've understood like what's driving the profit, the products, and then being able to put those products in other locations, uh, recognizing the limits, the barriers of having only you know less than 70 stores. But then the purchase of those products, to me, that drives brand awareness, seeing the Stuckey's logo in stores, seeing people wearing Stuckey's attire. Exactly. And really focusing on brand forward ways to get us in stores. So you're so right. It's not just, will you put our pecan log rolls in a dump bin in your retail operation? But I started working with a very talented designer who helped me come up with some beautiful display concepts. So we sold the entire display to stores and we'd say, all right, for $750, you can get this beautiful rack that has this lovely header that looks like a little blue roof stucky stores from the 1970s and will fully stock it with product. So that does two things. One, it promotes the brand because you've got this beautiful rack. Actually, it does three things. Two, it gives us more visibility in the store. And three, once they have a rack that's branded for us, they're going to need to restock it as opposed to just having a shelf on their store that you can take us out and put something else in there. So we've got our branded display that has some real estate space in their store. And if it looks beautiful enough, they're going to want that in their store because they want to sell product just like we do. So it's been a win-win and that led to more displays. I've got a couple of other display concepts that are actually being manufactured right now. We found a wonderful vendor. So a lot of also what I'm doing is really being thoughtful about who we do business with. That's what COVID taught us, getting down to the simplicity of things. Your supply chain should not be complicated. Your supply chain should not always be dependent upon China or Taiwan or India, some of the other, you know, those are some of the countries where we source product. Nothing wrong with doing business with those company, those countries. And I, you know, I, I, I welcome international trade, but at the same time, I found that having some domestic manufacturer relationships has really paid off in having that personal relationship where I can actually visit with them because we're in the same country and the shipping costs are reduced. They're willing to do smaller quantities and it's just been wonderful. And I've I've really started to learn the stories of our vendors and, and establishing those relationships. And then we just keep bringing them more business and we grow together. And that's one of the key drivers, really, of any business. um, Every business is in the relationship business. No matter who you are, no matter what you sell, it really is about relationships. And if you've got great relationships with your vendors, then they can be more bought into your brand. Exactly. It's relationships with your vendors. It's relationships with your employees. It's relationship with your customers. And all of that is around building community. I think that's one of the most important things that I've taken from my previous life. I was a politician. I was a state representative for 14 years and I was head of sustainability for city of Atlanta. And my prior work was about building community. That's what I'm trying to do with Stuckey's. I'm building a community. And now my community is around road tripping. That's a bigger picture. It's not just selling a pecan log roll. It's selling the road trip. 
It's selling the experience. It's selling that emotional connection and that relationship that you build with people through a shared experience that that we all love. And not everyone loves road trips, and that's fine. Those aren't our peeps. (laughs) They might need to go frequent another retail operation. We are the brand if you love road trips. And that's something that few brands do is really define who their audience is, who their customer is. And if your audience or if there's an audience that doesn't like road trips, well, they're not necessarily your customer. And that's Keep okay. Keep it simple. Yes, Keep it absolutely. Simple. Know who your customer is. As Seth Godin says, I quote him frequently. I'm a oh, big fan that. of his, what, 200 books or something? The guy's a maniac. Know your tribe. And when people ask me, well, what are you doing to reach this demographic or that demographic? I just, it's the same thing I did in politics. I ran on a partisan ticket. I'm now nonpartisan in Stuckey's, but I wasn't trying to get voters from the other party. I knew what I stood for. I knew what my message was. I knew the community that I was building and that's who was going to support me or not, you know. So I, I, that's who I cared about. I cared about the constituent. I mean, not that once you get elected, obviously you care about all constituents, just like once you want a store, anyone who walks in the door, you want them to have a positive experience, but you still have that core group of rabid consumers, rabid fans, like that's your tribe. That's who you're really waking up every morning, excited about what you do. It's to reach them and build that community. And that's what some of the strongest brands do is really define who their community is, who their community isn't, and define who they are as a brand and and even who they're not as a brand. I'm such a fan of brands now. And that's what I have so loved about this career pivot is learning the history of brands that I admire. And for me, the brand comes to life when you know the story. And so, so much of this is storytelling, but one of my favorite brands is Nike. And Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, did not necessarily set out to make the greatest athletic shoe of all time, although that certainly was part of what he was doing, but he was building a community of runners. He was a runner. He competed in track in college and he got a famous coach to be his co-founder. So he was all about building a running community. And back when Nike was founded, running wasn't the craze that it has since become. It wasn't, it wasn't really a thing. To have people strap on running shoes and go out for a run in a city, people would look at you odd. But he loved running. He knew there was a community of runners and he built the brand around going to track meets And having salespeople, he didn't have a retail store initially. He had a sales rep. One sales rep is how he started, who went to track meets and sold shoes to runners. They were building community. That's what it's all about. It really is. It really is. And part of what brings your community to you is that shared identity. The other part, I think, is the experience that you provide. And what really defines a brand is the overall experience that your customers, your tribe, your community has. And and, and that's the experience through every interaction, whether it's, you know, in the retail store, online, or even through whatever messaging they see. So how are you defining the Stuckey's experience? 
through as many channels as possible. And it's such a challenge today because there are so many ways through social media that you can interact with consumers and trying to find out like what's the next great thing and then make sure that it's really brand forward. For example, we're not on TikTok. And maybe we should be. I'm sure Gary Vee probably says we should be. Another one I admire. But I don't see that as much as our space. And so I really try to look at where people who are in our space, where are they interacting? And how can we meet them where they are? So Facebook has been really positive for us. Instagram has been a great site for us to engage, especially with the food and I, we are all about the pecan as well. And so that's a that's a really good site for us. Emails are really awesome. I think probably the best form of communication if you are a really small brand. I mean, we can't afford a Super Bowl commercial. Heck, I can't even afford a commercial right now on local radio. So uh, we're limited in our ad spend. So being scrappy and figuring out what is the most strategic expenditure of our limited resources has been critical. And what I love about email is that is extremely targeted. Those are people who have self-selected to sign up and receive communication from us. And when I'm looking at the analytics on conversion rates, who's coming to our website and not only visiting our website, but taking those extra clicks or two to get to the shopping cart and purchase, it's email. That is our number one way of generating customers and communicating our message. So that's sort of the venue. And then how we're communicating it is through storytelling. Almost everything I do with Stuckies, even if it's salesy, even if I'm saying buy our product, I'm doing it around a story, just like the Jay Peterman catalog, which I know kind of went through its ups and downs, uh, but I love the Peterman story. Like, they went bankrupt. They rose from the ashes. They're back. They're, there's there's so much the Peterman story, and the way they weave this tale around the product, it makes me want to click that buy button and and take it home with me and have it be part of my life. That's what you want. You really do, and and it is storytelling that drives so much of that because like that's where that's where your customers, your community can really connect with your brand on an emotional level. And I think you've got a lot of storytelling opportunity just based on the history alone. Oh, Lord. That's the advantage of having a nostalgic brand. Of course, you come with all the baggage that comes with that brand, but you also come with such rich history. We've been around 80 plus years. So I have 80 plus years of amazing stories. And When I took over this company, my mom gave me six boxes of archives of my grandfather's papers. It was mostly newspaper articles and magazine articles on Stuckey's, but a lot of them were first account interviews with him. I was 12 when he died, so I have very little memories of my own. And so I spent the first three months every night just reading all these interviews and and curating all of that very carefully into a document that's got bullet points. And I grouped the stories into different headers, like here's stories about 
the founding of Stuckey's. Here are stories about how he advertised. Here are stories about his billboards. Here are stories about candy making. Here's the story about how he survived World War II. Got tons of stories under there. And so I grouped it and I've just been mining that document for post on social media. And it's just such a, a wealth of, I mean, I literally have a couple more years of stories and then the stories feed on stories and other people are telling me their stucky stories and I'm sharing their stories. And so I just feel like I have an endless supply of material with this brand. And that's a great opportunity to be able to have uh, that deep of a mine <laughs> to be able to go through and mine yeah. those stories. But, and I wouldn't um, neglect the visual component either. We have, I'm still getting them digitized. It's been quite a labor of love, but some, oh gosh, probably about 500 images. And some of them are less interesting. It's a bunch of guys smoking cigars at the Stuckey's convention, which are less interesting. <laughs> but then I found some amazing photos of my grandfather liked to use beauty queens to model his candy products, which was so brilliant because they were all about these small town places where Stuckey's is located. So we right. might have a store in Perry, Georgia, and that's where they have Miss Gum Spirits of Turpentine. And so he <laughs> literally would get these beauty queens, Miss Cotton Bull Weevil, whatever, yes. and have them pose with Stuckey's candy boxes. And I've got all these great old photos and I've been posting them along with the stories. And there's a little bit of video content too, not as much, but I'm in the process of trying to, to uh, edit and create some video sort of uh, collage slides shows with that material as well. So having the visual component accompany the stories, it gives it so much more depth. It really does. And it helps bring that nostalgia factor that a lot of people crave when they remember a brand and they're seeing the brand come back. I, I think there's something comforting about nostalgia, especially now with the isolation we've all experienced through the pandemic. It's people are turning to these brands that are very familiar to them. And there's a level of trust that comes with the sticking power of a multi-generation family brand. And you should just own that, which we do. There's a lot of storytelling that comes from your grandfather and what he did to build the business. But I've also heard you talk about how it wasn't just your grandfather that built Stuckey's and that your grandmother and there were African-Americans that were instrumental in building the Stuckey's story. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So thank you for raising that. I think it's something that's really important that more businesses, especially in the South, let's be honest, the, the South has had a complicated, challenging and tragic history with race. And there are a lot of companies, I think, out there that just maybe don't know the history or have hidden the history. I mean, I think it's very likely that history was hidden over the years. And that is somewhat the case with Stuckey's because I didn't really fully know the history of Stuckey's and race in particular until we were featured in the movie, The Green Book. And for those for the listeners who aren't familiar with The Green Book, it was the African-Americans guide to driving throughout the U.S., but particularly in the South. During the Great Migration, when so many African-Americans left the South and went North 
and they would live there for decades, and then they'd want to come home and visit their family members who had stayed behind in the South and didn't realize that times really had not changed in the South while they had been living up in Detroit, New York, and Chicago and whatnot. And so they literally needed a guide to say, here's where you can pull over safely and get gas or use the restroom or get a bite to eat or stay in a hotel. There were only so many places where they could do that without being threatened, frankly. It was, right. it was literally a, a matter of safety and life and death. So Stucky's was a safe place to stop. It was always a welcoming oasis, as I like to say, and we were never segregated. And so that's why we were featured in the movie. And when I learned that, well, I learned that when the movie came out and I had actually uh, back up, I had heard it over the years, but did not understand the impact of it until I saw the movie and really knew like the full history behind the green book that I had such a deep appreciation for the fact that my grandfather opened his stores. But what I did know is this is interesting. When I first ran for office, I ran in a district that was majority black and I ran against some prominent African-Americans in the community. And in part, I was elected thanks to my grandfather because I remember I, what was pivotal for me in my campaign was I got a, a black preacher to back me and I met with him. And of course I shamelessly brought him some stucky streets and he said, I'm going to back you one. I like you. I think you're smart, whatever, you know, it was very complimentary, but he said, I so appreciate your grandfather letting us stop at your stores. And I remember as a kid stopping at Stucky's and we could always go there and know that we were welcome. And I heard stories, not just from him, but from others. I would have African-Americans of a certain age come up to me and say, thank you. I want to thank your grandfather. I want to thank your family. So that, that really has meant a lot to me. The other thing that the other story that isn't told as much, and I didn't discover it until I started delving through his papers is that my grandfather, when he first started the company during the depression, he was working on our family's farm and he had Stuckies as a side hustle. He was buying up pecans from farmers and then selling them to a pecan sheller. And he was also selling them at his little shed. And he had a black man who worked on the farm with the family work with him in that endeavor. And his name was John King. And John King uh, really helped my grandfather start Stuckies. It was the two of them driving throughout the countryside. And he stayed and worked for Stuckies throughout his life. I've heard differing reports. One report was that John King later owned a Stuckey's or oh. part of a Stuckey's, which was not very common back in those times. This would have been in the 1950s for a black right. man in the South to own a business or have that business gifted to him from a white man. That was what I read in a firsthand account interview that was published in a book about my grandfather. It's a biography about my grandfather. It was published by Macon University Press. So it's a credible source. But having said that, it took me months, but I tracked down John King's family and he had seven children. And I talked to a couple of the sons and one of the sons said he was promised a store and never got a store. And he was, his, his wife, the widow was not very happy about that. Uh, oh. But another son said, Oh, they were friends. 
your grandfather, I remember, would pick up my dad and they would go on fishing trips in Florida. And uh, after my father died, your grandfather would pick up my mother every year for the office Christmas party, even, you know, many years after my dad died. And he had a, a chauffeur pick her up and take her to the party. And, you know, he, your, your grandfather always remembered the role my father played. So I've heard differing reports, even within the King family. So I don't fully know the story. I don't know if I will ever fully know the story. What I do know, all reports are consistent that John King was there at the beginning, that he worked for my grandfather throughout his life. And in the 50th commemorative anniversary issue of Sweet Talk magazine, there's a prominent page devoted to my grandfather and John King and they're photographed together. So this is in the official company newsletter and John King's role was acknowledged. So that I do know for a fact. And I saw that and I was really touched that, you know, it was featured in the 50th commemorative edition. So it, it's, a, it's a complicated history. And it's one that I, I've been talking with some other, some African-American entrepreneurs who have encouraged me to share the story as much as I can, as much of the facts that I know. And I think it's important to tell that and to, to publicly acknowledge like this man was, played a role and we're grateful. I, I, you know, I'd love to repay the repay his generosity right now. We're barely eking out a profit. We are profitable, but barely, but I, you know, I, I sent them some candy. I want to stay in touch with them. I want to continue to engage with the family and, and see where it takes us. Uh, the other thing is my grandmother was very critical in the company. It was her recipes. She was a trusted confidant and certainly the role of women. Uh, they, during World War II, they kept the candy plant going and right. worked the plant. And then after the war, remained as employees. So a lot of our employees were females and were, and were Black. So uh, we employed a lot of people. And my grandfather employed people who may not traditionally have gotten jobs back in that time. Oh, wow. And that just adds to that rich history, that rich story. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's also challenging it with these older brands is really knowing the full history because not everything is documented. And our candy plant was sold when my grandfather sold the company and then somebody else bought it. And I went through the plant recently and it just broke my heart. It was just completely in shambles and we weren't able to, so many people asked me, why didn't you buy the Stuckey's candy plant? It just wasn't, it wasn't viable. And so we bought a, fully functioning, turnkey ready, already in production candy plant. But going through my grandfather's old factory, like I was opening up drawers. I went into his office and there was nothing. The papers are long gone. There's nothing there. So I'm grateful for what I do have, but there's, there's gaps. And so that's a challenge. There's gaps, especially when it comes to things like race relations, you know, relations with women, the history of women working for the company. That's just not stuff that was really publicized back then. So getting those bits and pieces is hard. And most of those, almost everyone back from that time is dead. Right. Maybe there will be opportunities to try and find some of those stories, you know, as the Stuckey's brand continues to grow. Yeah. And then, and then you're helping to author the Stuckey's yeah. story, you know, going forward. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is just be totally honest and even somewhat vulnerable. I don't, I don't think we really talk that much about CEOs being vulnerable or brands being vulnerable, but I think vulnerability leads to authenticity and trust. 
And, you know, our history with John King may not be the most flattering history, but it is what it is. And he may have been promised a store and not given a Stucky store. And so I think it's part of my, I don't know, obligation, but I just feel like if I'm to tell the story of Stucky's, I have to tell the whole story. And it's not the real history unless you fill in those gaps with what really happened. And so that's what I'm trying to do and, and acknowledge the role that people played who may not have gotten the recognition that they deserve. And that can't be easy. But to your point, uh, you know, and, and I teach this to leaders a lot as well, is that vulnerability can be a strength. I'll be honest, I haven't even thought of vulnerability as being a strength for a brand, but thinking through that, I think that will really help you. And and, and that's going to help to excel and evolve the Stucky story going forward. I think it's human nature to root for the underdog. Everyone loves a comeback story, right? One of my favorite movies is The Bad News Bears, and they were vulnerable. (laughs) Walter Matthau was an alcoholic. Tatum O'Neill was a mess and she cussed and their star player was, you know, riding a motorcycle yeah, and committing petty crimes. And they were, they were all messy and complicated, but they were human and they were real and you could connect with them. I'm usually attracted to the brands that aren't the very top. I, I want the ones that are scrappy. You know, what's, what's the, is it Avis? We try harder. We're number two. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's that was one of the most popular campaigns of all time, and it was being vulnerable, saying we're number two. So we're just going to come out and say we're number two. But that is that vulnerability is our strength because that means we try harder. Yes, and you recognize, you know, all the work that needs to be done to to revitalize the brand, but. One of the things that you shared this earlier, that no locations are corporate owned. And that can be difficult when you're trying to have frontline team members deliver the Stuckey's experience. So how are you teaching these uh, licensee locations or retail partners how to deliver the Stuckey's experience? So a few things. First of all, we have limited resources. We are a very small team. So I have to be strategic about how I expend my capital. And by capital, I mean financial and also physical capital, my capacity to, to deliver. Right. And I can only do so much with the existing legal framework of our, of our agreements and with stores that we don't own or operate. So I can only say so much to a franchisee or a licensee or store owner that you need to have your store look better because it's out of my control. So I have chosen to focus my energy on really building the brand through the quality of the product because I can control that. So that's why I bought the candy plant. When you're small, you cannot win the volume game. The only way we can win is if we provide a quality product. So we're not going to beat Walmart or Costco, but we can provide the absolute most delicious pecan candy treats and pecan snack treats that you will find anywhere. So that is what is totally brand forward. So we're offering that to the stores. We're offering them the displays, like I said. 
And then the other thing I'm doing is the storytelling around the road trip. And I can do that through podcast. I can do that through videos. I've started doing more reels. And I actually posted a video short on road tripping today. It's four minutes long and it's on LinkedIn. I put it on social media, other channels as well. So I'm experimenting with, with those channels. I'm, I do a PCAM blog roll post three times a week. Most of those are about either road tripping or nostalgia or candy, nostalgic candy. And so I talk about road trips and I put the message out there and I create the stories and it's just building the brand that way. There are more ways to build a brand than just having bricks and mortar storefront. So I got to, you know, I got to meet, I got to meet the company where it is. And then right. my dream in three to five years is we increase in cash flow. I would love to have some corporate owned stores that we own and control and that are really special. And I think when you've got some corporate owned stores like that, they can also act as a training ground, so to speak, being able to show others, hey, come come look at this store and how it performs. And this is the experience that we provide. Well, yeah. And the other tool we have in our arsenal kit or is that we can always de-brand. And I frankly would rather have less stores that are just really special and unique than have a lot of locations. And we actually are de-branding a store this week that is just not brand forward. And the store looks bad. I've gotten lots of customer complaints. Oh. The bathroom's filthy. You know, that's that's like the number one cardinal rule if you have a roadside retail location. You have to have clean restrooms. Absolutely. And if I get a dirty restroom complaint about any of our stores and I monitor all the Yelp and the Google reviews, plus we have an online portal where customers can post complaints. I, I talk directly to the owner of the location. So we can always de-brand. That, frankly, is part of our plan is that we will move forward with the best of the best. We have some wonderful locations out there that I'm just so proud of and owners who operated the stores for decades and some just a few years, but they get us and they are very brand forward. We've got some that could use some TLC and then we've got a handful that I will be de-branding and I'm not... I'm not shy. I'm not, you know, I'm the only thing that holds me back is making sure we have the cash flow. So I am constantly monitoring to make sure that we've got sufficient funds to be operable, to make sure that our employees are compensated, that we can fulfill our orders. So I'm constantly monitoring the cash flow. So as long as we can manage cash flow, I am prepared to de-brand stores that aren't lifting up the brand. It's not worth it to me. It, 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 it takes us backwards. That's right. That's a great lesson, you know, it, because it'll cost you so much more when you yeah. have those assets or those locations that are providing a detriment to your brand instead of building your brand. And I mean, that's the great thing about a nostalgic brand that's been around 80 years. Like we have sticking power and I'm not a private equity firm that has bought stuckies and I'm going to do a three to five year turnaround and get it profitable. And then I'm going to flip it. I'm looking at 10 years from now. I'm looking at 20 years from now. I'm looking at 30 years from now. I'm looking at my kids running this company. I'm looking at my partner's kids running this company and he just had another baby. So I'm very excited. <laughs> I want him to have more kids and more potential future stuckies CEOs and presidents. 
So I'm in this for the long haul. And if you're in it for the long haul, you're willing to take a short-term hit on your financial statement, provided you've got the cash flow to, to sustain the hit, because you want to build the brand. I'm not just building a profit. I'm building a brand. And it sounds like you're also focused on that legacy of the brand. It's not just the brand Absolutely. today, but it's it's where the brand will go, you know, even even once you're out of the picture, even. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, uh, what advice would you give somebody else who's leading a brand that's in need of a comeback today? Drink lots of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have consumed so much caffeine that we are now doing a Stucky's coffee brand. Oh, wow. So, yes. Uh, I, I, I think the other thing I would advise is be creative. Don't be afraid to embrace being outside the box and thinking about design, thinking about storytelling, thinking about building a community. I think too often, and I didn't go to business school, so I don't know, but I did go to law school. I think the experience is somewhat similar where you are taught the basics of law. You're taught the basics of business and they really don't teach you creativity. And I think that is secret sauce that gives a brand sticking power. That is the reason why I am here today talking to you about Stuckies instead of us having just been a little roadside stand that lasted for a few years. It's because we're willing to be creative and tell stories. And that, that is what has made the brand survive, even when we were completely trashed by corporate America that didn't get the brand. We sustained that terrible hit for decades because right. my grandfather was a creative genius and he knew he was building an experience. He was creative. He wasn't your typical businessman. He was the he was a great American entrepreneur, just in the same style as Wilson Kamins Wilson, who founded Holiday Inn and Truett Cathy with Chick-fil-A, Harlan Sanders with Kentucky Fried Chicken. So many of these entrepreneurs, Milton Hershey with Hershey's, that I just completely admire how they, they came from nothing. The McDonald's brothers, Ray Kroc, they all were just big believers. I'll throw a woman in there. Marjorie Post was pretty kick-ass. So I would like to see more women in this field. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, what, what's interesting, the point you made is that your grandfather had built a brand that was so strong that it was able to survive, you know, over the past you know, few decades of, I guess, not being managed or led properly. And from all that you've said, you've got great plans to help the brand thrive even further. Exactly. Stephanie, last question for you. If you were to create a five song soundtrack for Stuckies or for your work on Stuckies, what would you include? Well, I'm all about the road trip. So I would do a road trip soundtrack. So this is so easy for me because I've probably got about 50 road trip songs that I have on my playlist that I play when I hit the road for a trip. Uh, so some of my favorites, I, I'm from Georgia. My family's been in Georgia since the 1820s. Wow. I have red clay permanently in my blood. Though. So I would start with a couple of Georgia bands, REM, Driver right. 8 is a yes. great song. 
Yeah. And not as well known. I love all of REM songs, but I have a particular affection for their the murmur and oh my goodness, Bill early years. So Driver Eight is a great song. That's Autumn our first Brothers. REM song on here. Hooray! Yeah. Oh, Driver Eight's awesome. Uh, Ramblin' Man, Almond Brothers, On the Road Again. I think that's just such a classic. And who doesn't who doesn't love that? Uh, Life is a Highway. Tom Cochran. And I'll close out with one that reminds me of a road trip I took with my best girlfriend after law school. Take it easy. The Eagles. We went to Winslow, Arizona and stood on that corner and took our picture like thousands and thousands of people. There's a whole tourist industry around standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. So I'll, I'll end my playlist with the Eagles. There you go. Wow. No, that that's all great songs. I love the Georgia connections with REM and the Almond Brothers. And you know, how telling, you know, because of all the traveling you're doing, but also just, you know, on the on the trip that you're taking with the Stuckies brand too. Stephanie, where can people go to learn more about Stuckies? Easy, stuckies.com. And we are unfortunately somebody took the handle for Twitter and Instagram for at Stucky. So we're at Stucky's Pecans on Twitter and Instagram. LinkedIn is just Stucky's Corporation and Facebook it is Stucky's. And then you can follow me personally. I post every day, Twitter, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, not as much Facebook. Facebook tends to be just my curated friends who see posters, pictures of my kids, right? But definitely Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you follow me at Stucky Stop, all one word, you'll see a lot of posts about road tripping. Yeah, lot, lots of cool stories about Stucky and cool stories about just other places on the road too. I love it. Stephanie, Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun, but it's also been really insightful too. I'm loving the brand comeback story. Well, thank you, Matt. And I really appreciate you stopping at Stuckey's. I appreciate you sharing your memories. And I love what you're doing with your messaging to companies and encouraging us all to just stick to the basics, keep it simple. And that's how you're going to grow a brand. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Stephanie Stuckey. So go and check out all the fun, nostalgic content and products at Stuckey's. And as you're heading out on your road trips this summer, make sure you stop at a Stuckey's location on the way. It'll turn your road trip into an experience. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Joe Polizzi. Joe's the founder of Content Marketing Institute and The Tilt, He's the co-host of This Old Marketing Podcast, and he's the best-selling author of a number of books, including Content, Inc., which is having its second edition release next week. So go ahead and subscribe, and you'll automatically get Joe's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then... Keep it simple.